Well, all right. Oh, good. We're all, we are on. Fantastic. Well, Merry Christmas once again, everyone. It's, uh, it's today, December the 12th. We are well, in, well on our way. Christmas, just a couple weeks away. I hope everybody's having a good Christmas season so far. Um, this is, for our family, what we call Nutcracker Weekend, which is the Shreveport Metropolitan Ballet has its Nutcracker, its annual Nutcracker performances uh, this weekend. So um, today's matinee being the final one of those shows. And our family, we got two girls in the ballet. Um, and uh, so our, our, it's, a, it's, a whole, it's a full family, full court press. We call it Nutcracker Week. It's not just Nutcracker Weekend. It's, you know, there's a lot of preparation that goes into these things. And so, um, so, but, you know, it's become a tradition for our family, of course, for many families here locally, or, well, I guess in other places, uh, to see the Nutcracker this time of year. So, anyway, we're having a great time. Hope, hope Christmas is rich for you and your family as well. And, of course, Christmas is all about, and I'm going to use this big fancy word, and I'm going to try to explain why I'm going to use this word. Christmas is all about incarnation incarnation it's a four-syllable word and it's not even noon yet I hope that's okay uh, not even noon yet we're using uh, four-syllable words it's a fancy term and I think it's worthwhile to use the term and to know the term um, it means I guess it means um, that God became flesh incarnation like when you order on a Mexican menu, you know, carne asada, you know, it's the, it's the same Latin root for flesh, incarnation, the enfleshment of God. That's what Christmas is about. I love this quote. Um, it says that over-explanation separates us from astonishment. I love that quote. Um, and to be very, very candid with you, I don't even know the context in which the author, don't even remember the context in which the author used that quote. But it's certainly appropriate when it comes to incarnation, when it comes to Christmas. You know, because you can think about the opposite of that. I think that, you know, Christmas comes around every year and we have the songs and we talk about God with us and Christ is born and there's the, the baby in the manger and there's the, you know, heck, you can, you know, there's a little town of Bethlehem and even for, you know, for many of us, you can even take your car and go and drive through Bethlehem. I mean, we take this thing and we just, you know, it's just again and again and again, Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born. There's a sense in which we might think, yeah, I got it understand it's Christmas once again I've done Christmas you know for, for some of us I've done Christmas all my life and we sing the songs and we're like incarnation yeah I got it and the thing is and I think what what this quote brings out I think helpfully is that at least if explanation is understood as it is typically understood if explanation is understood as the effort to demystify a thing right like so here's a complex thing and I'm going to explain it and what I mean by the use of the word explain in that context is I'm going to demystify it. I'm going to take the mystery out of that thing, that idea, that word, or whatever. Um, and so here's where this quote, I think, comes in. Over-explanation actually separates, from us, separates us from astonishment. So what I'm going to do this morning, which you might find ironic, I find it ironic, and it's intentional on my part because I think um, my default is, um, just, is just that, to, you know, like... It, in any context, if you're a teacher of math or if you're a teacher of anatomy, you want to explain so that it's more simply understood, right? That's kind of like the goal in any kind of teaching context. Well, this morning, I would like to try 
to do just the opposite of that. I would like to talk about incarnation this morning and hopefully put the mystery back in it. Hopefully talk about incarnation and put the astonishment back into incarnation. You know, because the truth is, um, we as Christians, we are continually confessing things that we can't explain. We are continually declaring things that we can't comprehend. And I think, you know, I mean, when you utter the word God, you're saying something incomprehensible. When, when we when we think about, talk about Trinity, you're saying something that the mind can't comprehend. When we talk about Christmas, we're ultimately talking about something incomprehensible. And so what I hope to do is to get us to that place or maybe get us back to that place or at least get us a little closer back to that place. And so I don't know if this morning's reflections could or should rightly be referred to as explanation, because if explanation always means demystifying, then that's not my intention. In fact, my intention is the opposite. I want to I anti-explain <laughs> incarnation if that's such a thing, or if explanation could be understood as putting the mystery back into something, or putting the astonishment back into something, then maybe these reflections could be considered um, explanation in that sense. So let's talk about incarnation. And I want to begin, speaking of the Christmas songs, I want to begin at a point that's uh, familiar to many of us. See if you recognize these words. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. Anybody with me so far? You know the melody, you know the tune. Then get this line, God and sinners reconciled. Now, just stop right there and listen to what we've just declared in song. Many of us have sung this song many times. Listen to what we just said. God and sinners reconciled. But I want to just, I want to just suggest that we wait and stop and reflect on the fact that it's Christmas. We're singing this song, making this declaration at Christmas. Christmas is the time when God became one of us when Christ was born. This song is about the incarnation. This song <clears throat> is not being sung on Good Friday when Christ suffered and died on the cross. And this song is not being sung on Easter when Christ rose from the dead. No, we're singing this song on Christmas. God and sinners reconciled at Christmas when God took on human flesh. I just want to propose that this is important. This is important for us to just slow down and acknowledge. And of course, just to say, of course, when we hear, you know, 2,000 years later, when we look back, historically speaking, we look back at the birth of Christ. Of course, we are looking through Easter and then Christmas. I mean, Easter and then Good Friday and then that first Christmas. Of course, there's that. But nevertheless, when this great song was written, it was written about the reconciliation of God and humanity at Christmas, at the incarnation. It proclaims that in the incarnation of Christ, God and sinners are reconciled. And 
That's just worth pausing and reflecting on for a moment. And I want to explain to you why that is. Because it's because I suspect that most of us here in the flesh and those of us, those of you by live stream, podcast, most of us have come to think of our reconciliation with God in transactional terms, let's say. Um, and it goes like this. I can be reconciled to God or I have been reconciled to God because it's sort of like a bank transaction, like a big cosmic bank transaction. Every time I sinned, I piled up this big sort of a debt that I owed to God. And then Jesus paid my debt through his suffering and death on the cross. And now through placing my faith in Christ, I can have it so that Christ's payment can be applied to my sort of sin, debt, guilt, account, whatever, before God. And, and now I can be forgiven by God. And through all of that, I can be or have been reconciled to God, right? This is, don't you know, this is the common scenario for how people think about, you know, I don't know, how it is that Christ saves us, the meaning of the cross. And even this commonly understood scenario seems to sort of... Um, kind of tee up how it is that Christmas matters. Because, well, just as I said, Christmas is the precursor to all of that Good Friday and Easter stuff. Um, so this whole picture is understood like this very like spiritual, divine transaction kind of thing. And it's also very individualized. You know, like each individual has the opportunity to place their faith and kind of tap into that, um, tap into that big giant payment that Christ made. Um, so, so, so the point of all that is to say that in this popular scenario, Christmas is merely the setup for the real deal when it comes to reconciliation. Sure enough, reconciliation. Christmas is merely the setup for the real deal. Like it really all happened on Good Friday where Jesus suffered and died on the cross. And that is where Jesus made this big cosmic payment of price for sins. And only after that does it become possible for folks like like us, to be reconciled to God when and if we place our faith in Christ so that his payment is then, you know, his payment in blood and suffering is then applied to our account. And then our sins to be, can be forgiven. And then and only then can we be reconciled to God. Everybody see that? We know the storyline. I mean, that's the popular imagination for how it all works. But notice, please, again, I want to say, notice over against all of that, We've been singing this Christmas song for decades, and it joyfully proclaims the reconciliation of God and sinners, human beings, that's all of us, at Christmas in the incarnation, the enfleshment of God, Charles Wesley says, God and sinners are reconciled. Again, what's up with that? It sounds very strange to us, I hope. Again, remember my goal is to bring astonishment back. Because it sounds very strange to us because our deeply ingrained transactional thinking focused primarily, don't you know, on Good Friday. But did you know that for at least the first 1,000 years of the church, and even still to this day, for some large swaths of the church, reconciliation with God has been and continues to be by many understood to have been accomplished, just as Charles Wesley says in this song, 
through the incarnation. All of the earliest theologians of the church understood that God had reconciled the world to himself in the incarnation of Christ at Christmas. That is the root, the stump of this tree that we call Christianity from a theological perspective. So what that means is if you had been a follower of Christ during the first 1,000 years of the Jesus movement, roughly up until halftime, right? Um, if you had asked your pastor or your small group leader or whoever, hey, talk to me about reconciliation with God. How does that happen? And when, when was it? And how is it that human beings are or can be reconciled to God? If you had asked your pastor, small group leader, any, any, anyone, um, they would have begun to answer you by talking about Christmas. That's how they would have begun to answer you. They would have begun to talk to you about the incarnation. Of course, their explanation would include the cross and the resurrection and so on. But they would begin with and focus on Christmas, the incarnation. That somehow in that simple stable and that feed trough among the animals on that first Christmas, God had taken on flesh. And in doing so, it was more than that. He had taken on humanity, that God himself had enfleshed into humanity in his very own being, in his very own body. And in doing so, he had brought together the divine and the human, understood collectively so. Now that, that's just astonishing. Some of the most beautiful praise ever written or spoken has been provoked by the desire to celebrate and marvel over the incarnation of God in Christ. Here's one example from Gregory of Nazianzus, who lived roughly in the 4th century. I'm going to read this quote at length. This is from a Christmas sermon. <clears throat> he says, The very Son of God, older than the ages, the invisible, the incomprehensible, the incorporeal, the beginning of beginning, the light of light, the fountain of life and immortality, the image of the archetype, the immovable seal, the perfect likeness, the definition and word of the Father. That's who we're talking about. He it is who comes to his own image, that's us, and takes our nature for the good of our nature. And unites himself to an intelligent soul for the good of my soul. To purify like by like. You hear what Gregory's preaching about. He's talking about Christmas. He takes to himself all that is human except for sin. <clears throat> he was conceived by the Virgin Mary who had been first prepared in soul and body by the Spirit. His coming to birth had to be treated with honor. Virginity had to be, had to receive new honor. He comes forth as God in the human nature he has taken. One being made of two contrary elements, flesh and spirit. Gregory's trying, he's not trying to make it easy to understand. He's trying to bring the astonishment into it. One being made of two contrary elements, flesh and spirit. Spirit gave divinity and flesh received it. 
He who makes rich is made poor. He takes on the poverty of my flesh that I may gain the riches of his divinity. Wow. He who is full is made empty. He is emptied for a brief space of his glory that I might share in his fullness. What is this wealth of goodness? What is this mystery that surrounds me? I received the likeness of God but failed to keep it. We take that as a reference to Adam. He takes on my flesh to bring salvation to the image, immortality to the flesh. He enters into a second union with us, a union far more wonderful than the first. Holiness had to be brought to man by the humanity assumed by one who was God so that God might overcome the tyrant by force and so deliver us and lead us back to himself through the mediation of his son. The son arranged this for the honor of the father to whom the son is clearly obedient in all things. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep came in search of the straying sheep to the mountains and hills on which he used to offer sacrifice. He's preaching to a bunch of former pagans. When he found it, he took on the shoulders, uh, he took it on the shoulders that bore the wood of the cross and led it back to the life of heaven. Christ, the light of all lights, follows John, the lamp that goes before him. The word of God follows the voice in the wilderness. The bridegroom follows the bridegroom's friend who prepares a worthy people for the Lord by cleansing them by water in preparation for the spirit. And then here we go. We need God to take our flesh and die that we might live. We have died with him that we may be purified. We have risen again in him because we have died with him. We have been glorified with him because we have risen again with him. That's Gregory of Nazianzus who lived from 329 to 390 A.D. Now, this is rich stuff. That's a sermon snippet that is jam-packed with astonishment. There's no attempt to demystify there. In fact, it's the opposite. That is remystifying the wonder of Christmas. And there's plenty in that little sermon fragment to feed us. But I want to focus where we're focused today on that one line where he says that one being is made of two contrary elements, flesh and spirit. He says, spirit gave divinity and flesh received it. Now that sounds, I don't know, like almost Einstein-ish, right? Like Einstein said, yeah, you know, matter, matter and energy, they're not all that different, you know, E equals MC squared, all that stuff, you know, and he's just like tripping out. It almost sounds like Gregory is like, you know, a, 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 a proto-Einstein, just kind of off in some theoretical you know, la-la land with crazy talk, flesh and spirit. Obviously, they're contrary, bro. That's why we have two different words. We have a word, you know, the word called flesh, and we have the word called spirit. Or we have the word called spirit, and we have the word called matter. And the reason we have those two is because they're different things, you know. So he's like, but the thing is, though, I said all that to say, Gregory of Nazianzus is not making up stuff. He's actually following the apostles, in particular, um, the apostle John, let's take for an example today. Here's what John says in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Here it is. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Again, focus right there. The word, the one who was in the beginning, the one who was with God, the one who was God, the one through whom all things came into being, light and life came into being through him, and that life was the light of all people. That's the word. And then John says, the word became flesh. How can that be? And I think, kind of, John's point is, again, to use our key word today, John's whole point is the astonishment of it all. This is astonishing. It is the basic, fundamental, foundational reality of Christmas, and it is astonishing. Now, I mentioned this a moment ago, but to say that spirit became matter, let's deal with became human flesh subsequently, but to say that spirit became matter, it's, it's just crazy talk. It, it doesn't happen. It can't work. And again, that's kind of the whole point. And yet, within the very heart of Christmas, within the very core of incarnation, there is this insistence that in fact, that's exactly what happened. Spirit became matter. But you know it's more than that. It's not just that spirit became matter. It's that spirit became flesh, human flesh. And obviously, human flesh is a subcategory of matter, so it's worthwhile starting with that. But we're made of matter, stuff. And it says that God became, very specifically, human. Now, again, my effort today is not demystifying, but my effort is remystifying. And so I want to say that our, and I'm going to say this for me, you can test it for yourself, but our basic assumptions are that God can't become human um, because everything we know about God, unquote, um, tells us that God and he, the, the, the divine and the human can't even come close to one another, let alone become one another. How many times do we find in the pages of Scripture that if, if someone sees God, they die? If someone touches God, they die. If someone comes too close to God, they die. Over and over and over again, you find this pattern in the Bible. God and humans must remain separate or else, you know, meltdown. All of our religious sensibilities assure us that if the divine and the human were to ever really come into contact with one another, for certain and without any doubt, the divine would incinerate the human. That's what all of our religious sensibilities uh, tell us. This is just how it has to be. Anything else is inconceivable. And yet, when we confess incarnation, that's exactly what we're saying. We're saying not only did the divine and the human come into proximity, we're saying that the divine took on humanity itself. It is astonishing. 
You know, another way to think of this, or again, attempt to think of this, when, when you love something, you want to be close. You know, when you love someone, you want to be close to them. Your dog loves you. It wants to be close to you. You know, your dog loves you. It wants to be, not even, not just close, your dog wants to lick your face. I mean, your dog wants to be really, really close to you, right? Uh, we're not going to do a show of hands who are dog face lickers, but um, there are those kind of people out there. So you could say it like this. The love of God for humanity didn't not only sought after proximity with humanity, but the love of God is such that proximity, nearness to humanity was not enough. The love of God was so profound is that he actually became human. That's a deeper, more fierce love on fire than I think even the kind of love that we can fathom. There's a, a great book, really old book, um, by St. Athanasius who lived in the third century, um, really a pioneer to many of the doctrines that we consider the core of what the Christian faith is, Trinity, namely among them. Um, he's got a great book called On the Incarnation, and that book is all about the incarnation. That's his subject. And in the pages of that <clears throat> book, he does what I, I think is a good job of, of what we're trying to do today, um, which is to, I guess, I'm trying to avoid the word explain, but to describe or talk about incarnation without explaining. <laughs> He's not trying to explain anything. He's just trying to, you know, I think um, maybe, like to use our word, maybe he's trying to, you know, pump into our understanding of incarnation or our appreciation of incarnation more and more astonishment. That's, I think, what he's trying to do. Um, so along the way, in, in that little book, which I recommend, um, he gives two sort of word pictures to kind of expand the imagination. <clears throat> and I think they're worthwhile for our reflection today. Um, in the first one, he talks about a king and a village. And he says, imagine if a king were to ride into a village and move into one of those houses in the village. He just says, well, suddenly everybody would know all of a sudden, overnight, this little village would be <clears throat> now the most important city in the realm because the king, by moving into one of its houses, this king has elevated the entire city, not just that house, not just that neighbor, but the entire city has been elevated in its prominence, in its importance, because the king now lives in one of its houses. And also, we would all know, without even necessarily having to talk about her, that no bandit or robber or adversary would dare attack this city because now the king lives there. Everybody see that? And we go, well, yeah, Athanasius, we, we get that. And he says, well, that's the incarnation, that in Christ, God has made his dwelling among humanity and has therefore elevated all of humanity. Now, this you have to appreciate this challenge is a little bit our deeply held individual 
assumptions that we have in our modern era. Not that they were absent in the ancient world, but in the ancient world, they tend to be far more uh, baseline of thinking in the collective rather than the individual. And so he's definitely talking from the collective. But, so he says that Christ, because of becoming human, the person of Jesus Christ, the individual of Jesus Christ, he has, in fact, elevated all of humanity and has made the entire city called humanity an exalted city. Right? Isn't that beautiful? I just think that's a beautiful picture. Another image that St. Athanasius gives is the image of an image or a portrait and an artist. So he says, imagine an artist who paints a portrait of a person being the subject. Um, So now you have this portrait, which is in the image of its subject, the person who was the original subject. So just imagine the image is glorious, it's depth of color, it's detail, it's shading, it's breathtaking in its beauty, this, this portrait is. And so then time passes and the image becomes soiled and obscured and uh, hardly recognizable over time. Same canvas, but the image is now marred. So the question is, what is to be done about this beautiful portrait that's now been lost or nearly lost to just time and wear and so on. The canvas is there, but the image is marred. It's, it's obscured. It's soiled and sullied. And so what is the artist to do? Well, because the canvas holds the work of this exquisite artist, even though the image is obscured, the canvas can never be thrown out because of the importance of the original artist. What the artist needs Athanasius says, is for the original subject of the painting to come and sit again for a renewal of the portrait on the very same canvas. And so the artist, he says, calls for the original subject of the portrait to come in again and sit for a renewal, for a refreshing of the original portrait. And so the original subject comes and sits down and the artist sits down and the artist gazes upon the subject and takes the brush once again and refreshes the original image onto the canvas, painting yet again his very own image on that canvas that had been soiled and sullied and obscured over time. But now the artist is restoring again the portrait to its original beauty and glory. It's a beautiful story, and I know you're already ahead of the class in connecting the metaphor here. What Athanasius says is, You, humanity, you are the canvas, you are the original portrait having been created in the image of God. That's the language that he's drawing upon. But we were all soiled and sullied, we're marred and obscured by brokenness and junk and false love and on and on and on. So what does the artist do? What does God do in this case? Well, he calls for the original subject to come and sit again for a renewal of the portrait. And so Christmas, so Christ comes in the exact image of God. And he sits for a renewal of the portrait of the image of God on the canvas of human flesh. And therefore, the divine and the human are brought together. God and sinners reconciled as unthinkable as it may be. And again, I want to say, as 
untransactional as that is, right? That is the ancient understanding of the meaning of Christmas. And so I just want to say, as we continue through this season for the next couple weeks or a few weeks, um, and we sing the songs and we see the nativity scenes and we drive through Bethlehem, you know, in our cars or whatever, um, my hope and my prayer is that with all of that exposure, you know, and I mean the Christmas songs playing, and I, when I say the Christmas songs playing, I'm telling you, I got the Christmas songs playing in my world, in my car, in my house. I mean the Christmas songs. I got Nat King Cole. I got, how do you get a voice as cool as Lou Rawls? How does that happen? I don't know, but I can't get enough of it, you know? I'm, so when I, I mean, I got the songs playing. So, my prayer, my hope, my, you know, what I hope we're doing, maybe prodding us in the direction of it is let's keep the astonishment in it. Let's keep the wow. Let's keep the what is going on. How can this be, right? Um, this is the divine embrace of humanity. Does that include me and you? And Yes, it does. It is all of humanity. Let's keep the astonishment. Let's keep the mystery. Let's keep the, what's another word for all that? Let's keep the wow in Christmas. Amen? Let's pray.